Mike, do you remember our Concord episode from last year? Of course, I love Concord. How could I forget that? Well, it turns out there's more to talk about when it comes to supersonic airplanes. Hang on a second. I don't know why, but like I'm feeling some Star Spangled Bannerness from you today. Are we going to talk about something USA related? USA, USA, oh, gosh, here we USA. Go. That's right. That's what we're here to discuss. We're going to talk about your famed, really successful Concord program. Is that what we're going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Like all good American engineering stories of the 1960s, this one starts with a charge from President John F. Kennedy. He tasked the Federal Aviation Administration with preparing a report on national aviation goals for the period between now and 1970. I mean, that's not as inspiring as putting a crew on the moon, but I'll take it. Only one month later, the FAA's new director, Najib Halabi, produced the Commission on National Aviation Goals, better known as Project Horizon. It's a very good code name. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. The report built the case for an American supersonic transport. The Concorde was under active development at this point, and whilst it wouldn't fly until 1969, America didn't want to be left behind when it did. <laughs> you said that very definitively. Mm-hmm, I meant it. In fact, just three days after the Concorde announcement, Halabi wrote a letter to Kennedy suggesting that if the U.S. did not immediately start its own effort, the country would lose 50,000 jobs, $4 billion in income, and $3 billion in capital as local carriers turned to foreign suppliers. The FAA admitted that the Europeans were ahead in terms of technology and decided that the U.S. should focus on transcontinental flights only. Things got serious when Pan Am announced its plan to purchase Concorde jets. America had locked up the airliner industry before this, and it got nervous that these next-generation planes would put their businesses out of commission. I could, I could see that, right? Something coming, and uh, you're afraid of it? Yeah, upending. Yeah. So to recap, a supersonic transport is a plane designed to fly faster than the speed of sound. This makes transcontinental and transatlantic flights much, much quicker. However, as we'll get into, these planes had to push the engineering of the day to its very limits. Manufacturers had supplied designs to the federal government for consideration in January 1964. As soon as that happened, airlines started placing orders, despite no final plane being designed, much less built. Out of the companies in the market, Boeing was awarded a government-funded contract to develop America's answer to Concorde. The agreement subsidized some 75% of the development costs. The 2707, also known as the Model 733390, was presented in September 1966 alongside Lockheed's plane, the L-2007. Plans were accompanied with full-scale mock-ups. The Boeing 2707 beat out not only designs by the likes of Lockheed, like you mentioned. Their plan, basically, by the way, was just to build a larger Concorde. That's the most American thing I think I've ever heard. Take that one, make it bigger. It'll be great. North American's plan was to modify a prototype they had designed for high-altitude nuclear bombing, which seems a little intense. During the development process, Boeing only partially dealt with the major concerns of supersonic flight. The economics were doubtful, as the planes were expensive and had less seats available than current mainstream airliners. These economics, coupled with the issues of sonic booms and effects on the ozone layer, ultimately doomed the project. Hey, spoiler alert. Like you said, we'd all remember this plane if it had actually become a thing, right? Well, yeah, of course, because it's American. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, the company focused on sleep, dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. Casper do this by engineering mattresses that are perfectly designed for humans. They will support your natural geometry, giving you all the right support in all the right places. Casper mattresses are designed and developed in the US, and their breathable design helps to regulate your body temperature throughout the night. They have over 20,000 online reviews of an average rating of 4.8 stars, making them the internet's favorite mattress. Casper have a 100-night risk-free trial. You can sleep on the mattress in your own bed, in your own sheets, and make sure that it's right for you. And if you don't love it, they have a hassle-free return policy. You can get $50 towards select mattress purchases by going to casper.com slash ungenius and using the code ungenius at checkout. That is casper.com slash ungenius and the offer code ungenius. Our thanks to Casper for their support of this show. The 2707 was one of the earliest wide-body aircraft designs with uh, a seating arrangement of two seats and then three and then two on the other side for a total of 247 seats in its main cabin. This supersonic transport mock-up included both overhead storage for smaller items of restraining nets, as well as large drop bins in between sections of the aircraft. Retractable televisions were to be placed between every sixth row in the overhead storage. In the 30-seat first-class area, every pair of seats included smaller televisions and a console between them. That's really where you want it to be. All of this entertainment was to help offset the fact that the windows on this aircraft were only six inches wide due to high altitudes that the aircraft flew at, which would maximize the pressure on them. So you don't want them all popping in whilst you're going through supersonic flight. (laughs) That's right. Don't look out the window because you can't. Look at this TV. All these plans by Boeing were pretty optimistic. The company predicted that construction of the prototypes would begin in early 1967 and that the first flight could be made in early 1970. Production aircraft would start being built just the year before 1969. Flight testing in late 72 and certification by mid-74. So they had these really lofty goals uh, when they could get this thing built. Yeah, this was really aggressive, considering how much Boeing had to do. My expectations, this was government pressure to fit these timelines. Oh, yeah. But this is where they went with. The, uh, Boeing's design called for something known as swing wings. This means, as horrifying as that sounds, that the wings can be adjusted to different angles to accommodate more easily what the wildly varying speeds that the aircraft would be traveling on. These are more common in fighter jets, so like the wings that can move kind of up and down during flight. During development, the requirement required weight and size of the mechanism to move these wings continued to grow in scale, forcing the team to start over using a conventional fixed delta wing. This redesign then cut the number of seats down to 234, so 13 less. And probably a few fewer TVs. Yeah, just a few. <laughs> Smaller windows as well, turns out. <laughs> <laughs> no! No! It's, it's like looking out a periscope. The major components of the plane had to be built out of titanium to withstand the extreme heating from the friction caused by moving through the air so quickly. Traditional aluminum would have become soft during flight, which to me at least seems like something you don't want on an airplane. You don't want your plane melting. That's not good. No, it's, it's not good. The design called for the massive four jet engines to be mounted underneath the plane at the very rear of the fuselage, which made the plane rear heavy. To accommodate this, engineers had to add extra landing gear, which in turn only increased the weight of the aircraft again, and on and on and on. 
Despite these setbacks, by October 1969, there were delivery positions reserved for 122 Boeing supersonic transports by 26 airlines. It's like selling snake oil. Yeah, it's very peculiar. However, by 1970, the opposition to the project in the public was growing. Concerns about possible depletion of the ozone layer due to high-altitude flights from many environmental groups were made. The idea is that the exhaust of the jet engines included nitrogen oxides, which basically eats away the ozone in the upper atmosphere. While the claim was backed up by MIT, there were some weird, not-so-true environmental concerns raised as well. One such theory was that the water vapor released by the engines into the stratosphere would envelop the Earth in, quote, global gloom. Presidential advisor, so not some, like, random crackpot, Presidential advisor Russell Train warned that a fleet of 500 supersonic transports flying at 65,000 feet for a period of years could raise stratospheric water content by as much as 50 to 100 percent. According to, again, presidential advisor Russell Train, this could lead to greater ground level heat and hampered the formation of ozone. I think it's clear what was going on here, you know, while why Russell Train was spreading this. Because he's a train, Yeah, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't want the planes to take over. He wants the trains to continue winning, right? That's how that, <laughs> that's how that works. That's <laughs> definitely what's it's going definitely on what there. it was. It's from the great train family. As it turns out, atmospheric scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, our friends at NOAA, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago with uh, Friendly Floaties, they and other groups found that the drop in ozone would be only like 1% to 2%, even if a fleet of 500 supersonic aircraft were operated. Sonic booms were a bigger complaint. William Shercliffe wrote a paperback book about the problem and claimed that a single flight would leave a bang zone 50 miles wide by 2,000 miles long. Is that a zone? I don't know if zone's the right word for that. Big zone. Big zone. Big zone. Big bang zone. To study this, the government held a test dubbed Project Bongo. Best. Just get Horizon (laughs) out the window. Project Bongo is so good. It's pretty good. It's so good. Imagine this project for a second. They conducted 1,253 sonic booms over Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, over a period of six months in 1964. What did Oklahoma have to do to be in that situation? Why? Why? Results may have been a little bit tainted as the city had an economic dependency on the nearby Tinker Air Force Base. In fact, local Chamber of Commerce threw a celebratory dinner when Oklahoma was selected. But still, though, why? Congratulations, you've been selected to be annoyed by sonic booms daily for six months. Citizens were exposed to eight booms per day that began at 7 a.m. and ended in the afternoon. Holy cow. Why did they choose that time frame as well? Like, <laughs> I bet the alarm clock industry really tanked in Oklahoma City. <laughs> Kids were on school on time. Everyone was at work on time. <laughs> it was great. Testing was stopped early in the wake of property damage that ended in a class action lawsuit against the federal government. For instance, in the first 14 weeks... 147 windows in the city's two tallest buildings were broken. All in all, residents reported 9,594 complaints of damage to buildings, mostly for broken glass and cracked plaster. As the opposition widened, the claimed negative effects became even odder, including upsetting people who do delicate work, harming people with nervous ailments, and even inducing miscarriages. 
Despite this, the final report said that the overwhelming majority felt they could learn to live with the numbers and kind of booms expected in daily life. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Even with that conclusion, the overall results didn't bode well for supersonic flight. It was eventually banned over land in the US, and several states added additional restrictions or banned Concorde outright, and Congress wanted to pull funding for the project altogether. And we know this from our original episode on Concorde, that the planes had to slow down when they reached U.S. soil. No one wanted to be be like those people in Oklahoma City. Not that there's anything wrong with Oklahomans. No. Oklahomanians? No, no. What is it? Is it Oklahomans? No, I think that's right. H- Oklahomanians. Great, great, great. I've been to Oklahoma City. It's a perfectly wonderful city, but I'm glad there weren't sonic booms going on. <laughs> yeah. In March 1971, despite the project's strong support by the administration of one President Richard Nixon... The U.S. Senate rejected further funding of Boeing's aircraft. Supporters urged fellow supersonic flight enthusiasts, um, apparently that was a group, to mail cash into the government to keep the program alive, netting $1 million worth of contributions. Did that work? No. (laughs) No, it didn't. Okay. (laughs) Despite lobbyists pointing out that thousands of people would lose their jobs, the House of Representatives followed suit in May of 1971. The Boeing 2707 project was over before the first two prototypes were even finished. I guess it turns out it didn't matter in the first place, right? Because Concorde wasn't a thing in the end. I guess money ended up being saved in the long run. I don't know. <laughs> Concorde was kind of a thing. No, but not for long and not successfully, really, no. right? Like, uh, you know, it didn't have a great life, the Concorde. So this has been really fun to get into. I came across this uh, on a video on YouTube on a channel called Mustard. I have a link to this video in the show notes. It's an incredible YouTube channel that I've just been like obsessed about over the last couple of weeks. So go check that out. If you want to find a link to that and to these other things like Project Bongo. <laughs> Why do they call it that? Because like Sonic Booms are like bongo drums? Like well, because they were, they were making so many loud noises over the city. It was like, I guess... Some higher power playing bongo drums over everybody's heads. It really is a good code name. Anyways, to read about this stuff, uh, head over to the website relay.fm slash ungenius slash 48. Links should also be in the podcast app you're listening to right now. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at ungenius. You can find Mike there as I-M-Y-K-E. And you can find me on Twitter as I-S-M-H. And until our next failed supersonic transport project, Mike, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.